News, weather, traffic, money, politics, big interviews, and bold opinions. It's what's happening right now. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, it's the first day of the G20 in Bali, Indonesia. Prime Minister Justin Trudeau was there, had a bit of a, you know, pull aside with Chinese President Xi Jinping. And of course, that's a very important meeting considering it comes after Global News reported that CSIS has told the Prime Minister that China interfered in our 2019 election. So what happened during this discussion? Well, let's turn now to Mackenzie Gray, our Global National Reporter, who is covering the G20 in Bali. Hello, Mackenzie. Good morning, Sammy. All right, let's talk about this big meeting. Did the Prime Minister bring up this issue? He did. It was only about a 10-minute meeting. So this isn't the same kind of meeting we saw yesterday with Joe Biden, where he and Xi Jinping talked for three hours. Today, the Australians had a meeting. The French had a meeting. The South Koreans had a meeting. Justin Trudeau basically had to go up to Xi Jinping and tap him on the shoulder after the first morning session of the G20 and be like, oh, hi. I have a couple issues I got to bring up with you. So he raised the issue of interference in the election, which is obviously an important topic. And Melanie Jolie, the foreign affairs minister, also had a meeting with the Chinese foreign affairs minister. And we spoke with Ms. Jolie uh, later this evening here in Bali. And I asked her, well, what did the Chinese say when you raised this? And she didn't give a response when I asked her about that on two separate occasions. She said, it's not a conversation when it comes to interfering in Canadian elections. So it doesn't look like the Chinese have taken any kind of responsibility for it. And if they have, the government hasn't told us. Also in the meetings with uh, both both, uh, Mr. Lee and Justin Trudeau with the Chinese counterparts, they talked about North Korea as well as Ukraine too. Two key issues that have been discussed here on kind of a more broader basis with the other countries. Yeah, let's talk about Russia's presence there at the G20. What kind of an impact is that having? Well, really, they're uh, quite the pariah at this point in time. Even China and India, the two kind of countries that you would expect that would be backing Russia, uh, have really been kind of stepping away. We've seen uh, China in particular talk a lot about the use of nuclear weapons and that being something that they don't want to have happen. Of course, you've heard of Vladimir Putin and Sergei Lavrov, who is the representative who's been here for Russia, the foreign minister, uh, talk about potentially using nuclear weapons in certain circumstances in Ukraine. So the big question is going to be tomorrow when the G20 wraps up, what kind of communique, you know, the final document that the countries traditionally sign in these circumstances. What is it going to have when it comes to Ukraine and what kind of condemnation is going to be in there for Russia? Uh, Sergei Lavrov tonight is actually leaving the G20 early, so he's not going to be here tomorrow when these things uh, go down. He says he's left it up to the diplomats to be able to negotiate these things, but he said there is going to be some kind of final communique. What we can be certain, though, Simi, is that it's not going to have the same kind of really strong language we've heard from uh, Justin Trudeau and Rishi Sunak as well, the new UK Prime Minister, who've been very forceful in their time here, really putting the blame on Russia for what's happening in Ukraine. So is there some consensus among some countries and are some countries then other ones holding up the consensus? I mean, China and Russia, uh, China and uh, obviously Russia, but uh, China and India are never going to go as far as the, the G7 countries, as an example. Um, and in the end, too, these things are relatively symbolic. Uh, it's about getting China uh, to be able to buy less Russian oil to help them out. Same goes for India. So, you know, even if they sign on to something tomorrow and don't back that up with concrete actions to be able to punish Russia in a way, you know, it's just a piece of paper at the end of the day. All right, Mackenzie, thank you so much for that update this morning. Thank you. This is Mornings with Simi. Well, you've heard the news. The chief medical officer of health in Ontario is urging people to, one, get vaccinated, and two, 
return to wearing masks, especially around children under the age of four. That province is seeing a huge surge in pretty bad viral illnesses there. It has kind of slammed their healthcare system. It's filling up pediatric beds in hospitals. It is a huge concern. Even Premier Doug Ford coming out and saying that, yes, he thinks that people should wear masks for a couple of weeks. They're not going to mandate it, but they do think that this would be helpful. So obviously, when you see Ontario doing that, you ask the question, well, wait, what is going on here in BC? Should we be doing this too? We turn now to Dr. Brian Conway, who's the medical director and infectious diseases specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. Good morning, Dr. Conway. Good morning, Simi. Is it as bad here in our hospital situation as it is in Ontario? It isn't as bad yet outside of the pediatric situation with RSV infections, but it is likely to get worse and we need to prepare for it. And how do we do that? We get vaccinated. We're doing very well with influenza vaccinations, with uh, COVID shots in the under uh, four uh, age group. Only 7% of children of that age group have even had one shot. In terms of full boosters, including the bivalent booster, 15% of British Columbians are vaccinated against COVID. We need to step up the pace. Flu shots, we're doing good. We passed the 1 million mark. We need to continue to do better. We need to stay home if we're sick. If your friend shows up at work sick, send them home. And in that context, masks are an additional layer of protection that we need to use. Okay, I'll get to the mask point in a a moment. But first off, do you think maybe we waited too long then to get going on this campaign for the fall? Like maybe we should have started a couple weeks earlier. Absolutely. I think that especially for the COVID shots, we took our foot off the gas. These shots have been available for months and months for everyone. The bivalent booster has been available for many weeks And we just don't have enough of a structure to get people vaccinated fast enough. It isn't widely enough available. Uh, People aren't buying into it. There's vaccine fatigue. It's spilling over into the influenza vaccine. People don't want shots. I think that really has been our first line of defense. We need to reemphasize that going forward. So do you think it was a mistake to lump them together? No, I think it's great to lump them together because it saves people the hassle of going twice to get their shots. You can get both at the same time. I mean, that might have delayed the COVID shots a little bit uh, in terms of uh, waiting for the flu shots to start up uh, and then wanting people to get both uh, both at the same time. But uh, going to some of these flu shot uh, campaigns uh, at pharmacies, I'm seeing a lot of flu shots and very little COVID shots being given. And I think that's an opportunity missed. That's true. I asked about that at the pharmacy that I went to, and they weren't even administering COVID shots. They were only administering flu shots. Exactly. And I think that really is where the opportunity is, uh, is, hmm. totally, uh, is totally being missed. We need to do both. Okay. And what about the masking issue? So clearly in Ontario, they have been talking about this. Public health officials are. The premier is talking about it. We haven't heard much in B.C., Well, I think mask etiquette and mask guidance is sort of uh, where we are. In most healthcare centers, including our clinic, masks are mandatory. In certain settings, masks are going to be a good idea. So in a school setting, if a third of the class is away with respiratory issues, respiratory infections, it may make sense for that period of time where there seems to be the viruses going around all three of them, RSV, flu, COVID, that everyone kind of wear a mask till it dies down. And I think that's where this whole guidance and and using a mask as an adjunct is going to be very helpful. But if we have an unvaccinated population, this isn't helping us. If you had two COVID shots 
and it's been more than six months since you had your second shot, you are essentially unvaccinated in the era of Omicron. And that's messaging we need to sort of get out. Okay, so would you like to see then public health officials be more aggressive with this? Absolutely. I think first line of defense is vaccines were horribly under-vaccinated. Uh, and despite widespread availability of as many shots as, as, as could be requested. So that's our first line of defense. But let's, let's uh, emphasize that. Let's not have masks be uh, sort of the new sort of first line. That's my biggest concern. My, one of my concerns is people are going to say, well, I'll wear a mask. You know, I feel sick. I'm, I'm coughing. I'm sneezing. But if I wear a mask, it'll be okay. No, if you're sick, you stay home. Masks are to protect people who are well from becoming infected. And that's really the setting in which they're best used. Would you like to see something on that this week, though? I mean, obviously, we're not, we don't want this, this wave to show up here and then we start talking about masking. Well, the sooner the better. I think, uh, again, I'm not seeing very many strong messages about, uh, about vaccines. I'm not even, it would be so easy to have public service announcements, commercials saying, if you are sick, stay home. Let's just get that piece done. Don't be brave and go to work. Stay home. And if your friend shows up sick, send them home. That's going to help us. Increasing COVID shots. I know I've said it four times in three minutes, but man, we're, we're, missing, we're missing a great opportunity. And masks, please, everyone have a mask on your person. Wear it strategically. If people show up at my clinic without a mask, they are given a mask. You have a choice of three colors and you get to keep it. It is your mask. <laughs> you walk into my clinic, you are wearing a mask. That's it. There's no discussion. So there's some settings where we are going to wear masks, but it's certainly, you know, our discussion should be focusing more on vaccines at this point. First of all, who would turn that down, right? If you're offering me th- one of three different masks and three different colors, I'm going to take one. Uh, but also, yeah. it is. It, it, also, do you think then businesses also have a role to play here in doing exactly what you just said there? I've been in places where they say right off the bat, please put a mask on, and people do. Exactly, and I think that is a business's decision. And if, if it is their decision, their business, you need to honor that. It's not an issue of, civil rights, individual rights. It's an issue of public health. They've met that, they've met that decision. You kind of need to, to respect that. We're not going to ever force people to va- get vaccinated. We didn't in the first waves of, of the pandemic, and we won't now. But we need to emphasize the big role vaccines are going to play in helping us get through the winter as safely as possible. And I think that, uh, that needs to be, uh, that uh, businesses can play a big role there. All right, Dr. Conway, thank you so much. Always a pleasure. Dr. Brian Conway, Medical Director and Infectious Diseases Specialist at the Vancouver Infectious Disease Centre. I think health officials, doctors everywhere are watching what is happening in a province like Ontario and thinking, is that coming here? And they believe it is. So should we be more aggressive? How many among us out there, you know this, have somebody in your workplace in the last couple of months who came to work with a cold? Probably did, right? And I know you, some of you probably went, I thought we don't do that anymore. And yet we went right back to it. There's people are short staffed, businesses are short staffed. They may have felt pressured to come into work, but essentially it is happening again. People coming into work sick. And that's, you know, we're going to see more and more of these cases too. If you want to weigh in, simi at cknw.com. This is Mornings with Simi. Oh, we've been talking about fish farms in this province, it feels like, for decades. We still are. And now comes word from Washington State that in that state, 
they have decided there will be no more Cook Aquaculture fish farms in Puget Sound. They decided not to renew the last of the fish farming company's leases on net pens in Puget Sound. So what does that mean for BC? What, what's going to happen here as a result? Joining us now is Bob Chamberlain, chair of the First Nation Wild Salmon Alliance. Bob, thanks for being back with us. Uh, good morning, Simi. Thank you for having me. What did you think of this news? Well, I thought it was a very positive development in regards to protecting Pacific wild salmon. I mean, many of the things that I've read about this decision are mirrored uh, experience here in British Columbia. Like what? What they, Were they having problems as well? Well, first I see that, uh, you know, the First Nations or the tribes down in Washington State expressed deep concerns about the threat to their food security. And certainly that is an outcry from the majority of First Nations in British Columbia as well. And we're looking at, you know, the DFO is now uh, involved in the transition planning process. And I'm waiting to see if the government is actually going to fulfill its commitment to transition open net cage fish farms from the ocean and get on with looking after the primary responsibility, which is wild salmon and the environment. We've been waiting an awfully long time, I feel like, for some change on this, Bob. Is there change that happens that perhaps, you know, regular British Columbians just aren't seeing? Well, the changes have been slow and are largely ineffective. because The DFO has got a mandate to promote this industry in British, in British Columbia and Canada in general. And so what we see is a biased perspective in terms of regulation and condition of licenses and certainly in the monitoring. And, you know, when I read this, uh, the articles about what happened in Washington State where the Cook, Cook's uh, fish farms were operating out of compliance with regulation and so forth, that's exactly what's been happening in British Columbia for far too long. And the regulations and conditions of license have no teeth, no impact, and essentially the industry is self-monitoring and able to do whatever it is that they like, including impacting wild salmon in British Columbia. Right, because that was the concern here, right? I know this company had uh, a problem back in 2017 that spilled tens of thousands of non-native Atlantic salmon into the water, and that's that's right near BC waters. Well, many of these fish wound up in BC waters. I mean, they were being caught uh, quite... Uh, I, I remember reading about these fish being caught in the Fraser River. I remember them being caught up by uh, Tlaaman Nation's territory around Powell River and and in the Santa Chinlet as well. So, I mean, it's not like these fish are innocuous. And we've had many releases, accidental, of course, they state. And, you know, I'm mindful of the, the fish that were escaped from the fish farm on Guilford Island, where there was 20,000 that were lost a number of years ago. And the company reported that a good recovery was getting 1,500 of these back. And to me, it just shows uh, an indifference to the environment that they operate in. And I recall being in Norway talking to the uh, CEO of, of one of the big companies, and they, they just flagrantly said, we do what your your country allows us to do, and they don't bring their best understanding. So I think it's very exploited. Right, so they don't go above and beyond. They're just doing exactly what they're allowed to do. Exactly, and they know the impact of disease and pathogens and sea lice very well in Norway, but they don't bring that understanding here. So I don't see them as a very responsible corporate citizen. And to know that, you know, like we've got historic low salmon returns right now to the Fraser River. And that means low, historic low juvenile salmon leaving the river with 1% coming back to spawn. 
We have not seen the worst yet in terms of returns to the Fraser River. And it's time that the Canadian government and DFO realize that we're on this downward spiral for wild salmon. It's not just Aboriginal rights here. It's about the environment. It's about the economy that goes with healthy and abundant wild salmon stocks. And it seems that DFO has completely lost that script. All right, Bob, as always, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Appreciate your time. That's Bob Chamberlain, chair of the First Nation Wild Salmon Alliance, talking about the decision the Washington State Department of Natural Resources made in telling Cook Aquaculture it is time to leave that state and no longer do business there. They've decided not to renew the last of that company's uh, leases on net pens, which will have an impact on us here in B.C. as those net pens were so close to B.C. waters. This is Mornings with Simi. A year ago, we were very worried about the impact of flooding in areas where we grow so much of the food of this province. So given all the talk about the one-year anniversary of the floods, we thought we should check in on how the agriculture community is doing. Joining us now is Lana Papa, Minister of Agriculture and Food in the province. Thank you for being back with us. Good morning, Simi. I was looking back on my calendar and I think you and I spoke about a year ago on Thursday. (laughs) Okay, that's a very detailed calendar you've got there. (laughs) Well, what a difference a year makes. It does. It really does. But it's been, so I was out in the valley for almost all of last week going and and dropping in on some of the farmers who had uh, been in contact with us over the floods just to check in to see how things were going. Um, We went and looked at the project of uh, reinforcing the Sumas dike that's underway that should be done hopefully within uh, the next 10 days. Um, Looked at some debris sites that have been cleaned up, and it was quite a week. Uh, Things have moved along, and there's been a lot of progress, but there's still, you know what, there's still a lot of pain out there. And there's still a lot of work to do. So we are one year out now and uh, happy to see some of the progress. But boy, there's still a lot going on. What kind of work still needs to be done then? So are we not back up to the same level of, of production? Well, the production levels have been surprisingly uh, fast to return to normal, but there's still a lot of decisions that farmers have to make, and it just depends what what sector they're in. So uh, dairy and poultry are, are back to being at the levels they were prior. Uh, but when you go and, and some, see some of the blueberry farms, for example, uh, there's still decisions that have to be made by those farmers. So uh, blueberries being a perennial crop, uh, that some, some farmers wanted to see how the, the berries would survive um, just and produce over this last year and to see if the production levels were coming back. And some of them weren't. So those decisions to replant those fields will be taking place over the next few months. Uh, but there was other projects that were taken on to see if the, we could get the recovery to come back specific to blueberry, uh, cutting the plants right off at the base and letting the roots try and, and regrow. It seems to be a faster way to get those bushes back into production. But again, it takes a bit of time. So we see uh, some of that uh, recovery money that's out there to help farmers recover. We're still we're still in the progress with those applications in some cases. Okay, yeah, I remember last year we were talking about uh, to buy as many frozen BC blueberries as you could because those are berries in storage. Now, do we still have to rely on that, or are we going to feel the impact of this in the next season or two? 
Well, I, you know, we've lost, so in total, I think we lost about 10% of our provincial blueberry output. So there was still a ton of blueberries out there to buy fresh over the, the year. But I'm always going to tell people to buy frozen because as we see imports start to come in, uh, as far as fresh blueberries go, we've got incredible frozen blueberries that can be used just the same way in our freezer departments all over the province. So I still encourage people to buy frozen blueberries regardless. Um, so, But those those farms, they're, they're, tr- they're cleaning up. But, you know, just even on the cleanup, the amount of debris that came through and landed on farms significant. Uh, Minister Farnworth was out with me in the valley and he said that they had identified about 500 debris sites overall in his in his purview and um, those have been cleaned up now. But traveling through some of the farms, there's still piles of, of junk that are they're scattered around things that weren't on farm previously. So, you know, there's there's a lot of cleanup still left to do, but people really wanted to start on the rebuilding side of it. And so that will come. Um, but there's a lot of construction underway. Uh, but, you know, and, and there's still the people have had a fairly good year, even though we've had some more pretty bad weather complications, drought, etc. Uh, but I can still see the fear in their eyes. And as we get into the rainy season, I think there's, you know, there's obviously some PTSD and some mental health uh, concerns because people are still hurting. So given that, okay, we talked about blueberries, are there other industries of crops that you are concerned about? Uh, Well, you know, the perennial the annual crops, uh, they are reporting out to have done well. So these are things that just get planted annually, uh, things like vegetables. And uh, we've had some pretty good uh, reports out that way. But there's a chicken farmer, for example, that uh, needed to replace all of their electrical equipment and rebuild their barns. They were right in the right smack dab in the middle of the disaster. And they only just received the equipment that they needed a couple weeks ago, and that's due to supply chain issues like we're seeing everywhere else. And so I think some of the rebuilding has been hampered by just the availability of getting the equipment that's needed. So uh, they won't be setting their chicken barns probably till the new year, so they've been out of production for quite some time. And it's been difficult. They also lost their house. Uh, They lost everything. And so um, that's a hard one to watch. Some of the complications uh, as far as getting financial support uh, stems from different streams that some of the farmers are using. So uh, initially, they need to rely on their personal insurance programs that they signed up with outside of government. Uh, And some of those insurance claims are still being assessed and so uh, for example I, I did go to a dairy farm and the the private insurance is still there's still the jury's out on what what they will cover uh, our provincial programs have kicked in um, we have programs that farmers sign up to regardless uh, just around crop and uh, uh, interruption and that uh, those programs as well as the flood recovery money we do see that flowing out the door so about 55 million so far um, but as I said some of those applications are still in, in progress but we're, we're getting it as fast as we can um, probably about 800 payments have gone out so far. Okay so then looking ahead to the next year what would you like to see happen so we can fully put this behind us? <clears throat> well uh, we definitely need to uh, 
keep supporting the farms that need to rebuild. And like I said, there's construction underway. So we're keeping an eye on that. Uh, And then just support the farmers in the ways that they need. Uh, The diking work that's being done is going to allow people to sleep better, I think. I saw just the most incredible equipment uh, rebuilding that dike. It looks like a giant egg beater, and it goes down into the middle of the dike at the same time, they add cement and a chemical to make a very sound, strong wall. So they're rebuilding a wall inside the dike without having to disassemble the dike. And uh, I think once that work is done, there will be people just directly in the Sumas Prairie that will feel a lot better. But we still need to continue working with First Nations, with local government, uh, the federal government on uh, a general flood plan and that work is going now but I think you'll see um, some movement on that over the next while. All right well thank you so much for the update. Thank you we'll talk again. Yes we will. Lana Popham is the Minister of Agriculture and Food in BC talking about one year later yes some industries are back on their feet others still needing some help like the blueberry industry in this province if you want to weigh in simi at cknw.com This is Mornings with Simi New City Council in Surrey made its first major decision last night, voting to keep the RCMP by a vote of 5-4 to four, instead of moving forward with the transition to a municipal police force. Let's talk about the next steps now. Joining us is Brenda Locke, the Mayor of Surrey. Thank you very much for being here. Good morning, Simi. So what are the next steps now? So what happened last night was really... Um, uh, really to gather the information, to gather the information so that we can present it to the Solicitor General uh, with the facts, with the numbers, uh, and get our staff and ask our staff to prepare the report for the Solicitor. Okay, but you must have an idea, though, of how, how much is this going to cost? We actually don't have a good idea of what it's going to cost. I mean, certainly during the campaign, our team did our own work. And so from that perspective, I do have a a very good idea of what it's going to cost. But I think that the public is owed to have this uh, information done by the city, for the city. And so that's exactly what's happening right now. And we should have those numbers uh, starting to come out to uh, members of the public very, very shortly. Okay, I don't understand. So you, like the numbers that you were giving out during the campaign, were those not accurate? Did you learn something else uh, since then? They, no, they are absolutely, in our mind, accurate. But I think it's always important that the uh, citizens of Surrey hear directly from uh, our own um, finance people here at City Hall. And so they all have to review them as well. Are you concerned about the cost? I am very concerned about the cost moving forward. Uh, the cost, um, the cost for the Surrey Police Service has been hidden from the public. Many of these things, Simi, we should have done at the very beginning. So this is almost going back and saying we're going to rebuild those feasibility studies, the uh, cost benefit, the impact studies, all of those things that we didn't do. Pieces of that will be in this report so the public can see firsthand what the cost will be uh, for the city, but more importantly, on their own tax bill at the end of every year. Is there a point, though, Mayor Locke, where you say, okay, this is going to cost too much for Surrey taxpayers to go back to the RCMP? Uh, Well, you know, I don't know. That's anecdotal. 
um, I don't I don't see those costs. I haven't seen those costs. I have only been told by staff it is much, much less expensive to stay with the RCMP than to move forward. So when you do transition then back to the RCMP, what about local control? I know that was one of the concerns prior to all of this starting, was it having the RCMP meant that the community didn't have enough input into local policing. What about that issue? You know, that's actually a really great question. I'm so glad you asked it, Simi, because if anything we've learned, and I think other cities can learn from from the Surrey experience, is that we have far, far less control and input with um, a local government, uh, with a local government police department. With the RCMP, we always had um, a public safety committee, and with uh, moving forward, we're going to have a board that will be made up of Surrey citizens that will help um, have input. We also have more control and more transparency on the numbers involved in the contract we have with the RCMP. The flip of that is, with the Surrey Police Service, we have people that don't even live in Surrey on the board. The board for the Surrey Police Service answers to Victoria, not certainly not to the city of Surrey and certainly not to councillors because, as many people know, I had tried on a number of occasions to get information out to the public um, on this transition and never was successful with that. So um, the, the cost and the whole transparency between the RCMP model or the municipal model is very distinctive. Uh, what about the people who have made that commitment to work for Surrey Police, and, and many of them saying they don't want to go back, they don't want to work for the RCMP? Do you, what about the sympathy for them? Well, I am. I honor all uh, police officers. I think they will all make their um, their decisions independently. Certainly, there's many, many jobs in policing throughout Metro Vancouver um, that they can go to. But we certainly want them to consider coming to uh, the RCMP and they have an experienced officer program. I have, uh, I have personally talked to some SPS members that are, are interested in that and I know that, um, I know that is happening. Uh, but there's certainly other jobs um, all throughout Metro that they can go to if, if that isn't the avenue they want to take. Now, we know that Surrey Police Chief Norm Lipinski believes it's too late to stop this transition. What do you say to that? Well, you know, I think um, I think Mr. Lipinski is incorrect in that assumption. Um, certainly, I have talked uh, with the federal government and I have talked with the provincial government, both um, uh, Mr. Eby and, and Mr. Farnworth, and they have asked, uh, Mr. Farnworth has asked for this report, and he will be getting this report, and he knows exactly why we're doing that. Um, I would say that Mr. Uh, Mr. Lipinski is in, in somewhat of a conflict making that kind of assumption. It's, um, it's, not, uh, it's not what I understand at all. It's not my experience at all. Okay, so then moving forward, then are you concerned about ramping up the number of officers? Because now it just seems like Surrey has gone back and forth on this issue for four years, but you're not really adding more police officers to your city. Um, we we will be adding um, well we will be increasing the ranks of of the RCMP moving forward. Uh, we are also going to make in the next budget a commitment to additional police um, 
RCMP members for Surrey, and I have talked with uh, with the RCMP about that, and they will be able to fulfill that uh, that um, request. Um, but I will tell you that the uh, the Surrey Police Service has just not been able to get going, and that's been a big part of the miss. Um, Simi, remember, we've been at this for four years, and at four years, yes, they have a number of people hired, but they only have less than 150 officers that are working on the ground in Surrey. That's a concern. The other concern I will tell you is the previous council, um, to my uh, chagrin, uh, made the decision not to increase the numbers. We should have been adding about 18 officers every year for the last four years. We haven't. So the comment about are we behind, absolutely we be, we're behind, and that is why. All right, so then the next steps are you wait for this information from staff at Surrey City Hall, and then you talk to the province? Y yes, exactly right. So... Um, the staff are right now creating uh, the reports to go to um, to Minister Farnworth, and uh, those reports will come first of all to the public and to uh, to um, council on the 28th of, of November, so the end of this month, and then they will go to um, Minister after that once they're approved. All right. Well, thank you very much for your time this morning. Thank you, Simi. That's now. Brenda Locke, Mayor of Surrey, talking about the transition. Last night, Surrey Council voted by vote of five to four to go back to the RCMP, but there are steps that still need to happen on that, and there is a lot more discussion to come, and I think most of all for Surrey residents and taxpayers out there, you want to know what is this going to cost you, because make no bones about it, it is going to cost you. Are you worried about that? You can email me, simmy at cknw.com. Call or text our buzz line, 604-331-2899. I know that Mike is going to be continuing this conversation as well. So yeah, get those comments in. Call or text our buzz line on that. Are you worried, Surrey residents, about what this is going to cost you? This is Mornings with Simmy. I think at this point in the morning, we could all use a little good news story, couldn't we? So for that, we turn to our Raji Sohal. Hi, Raji. Hi, Simi. Yes, I want to tell you about this scholarship program. It's called BD Luminaries. That's amazing because it's not just for kids that are straight A students. In fact, it's not necessarily for them at all. Um, often, like kids with straight A's, they have tons of support at home and elsewhere. This is a scholarship that is for students with potential, but who are facing financial adversity. So it might be students that uh, might be successful, but they're constrained by their life circumstances. And Simi, it's in its fifth year, which means the first cohort of its recipients are due to graduate from university next spring. So I took this as an opportunity to chat with one of those students. Her name is Radhika Patel. She's 21 years old. She went to high school at Mosscroft in Burnaby. And money was tight uh, growing up around the house. And so she wasn't always sure she could fund a university education. My mom raised me for a majority of my life as a single mother. And she also not only took care of me, but my grandfather, who unfortunately had cancer at the time. She's given up so much of her life to take care of me. She actually took a job being a daycare operator just so she could see me grow up and be there at home. And I really valued that. And so that taught me that because she's put so much effort into making sure I had every opportunity that I wanted to be able to give back to her, 
And so when I was in high school, I would volunteer a lot at other nonprofits because that's something and a space I really am passionate about. And in school, I would do clubs and stuff. And one day my English teacher at the time told me about the BD scholarship and she really wanted me to go for it. I'd already applied to others um, and I was a little burnt out, but I thought, you know what, I should just I should just take this chance. It might as well. And a few months later, after the interviews, I ended up getting it and I was so happy. And it was honestly a dream come true because I never could have imagined being able to go to UBC, being fully secured financially. It was always going to be a struggle with getting loans, et cetera. Um, So to have that comfort and be able to ease my mom's financial burden was amazing. Yeah. So luminary scholarships, they don't recognize just grades. They're not focused on grades. They acknowledge grit, uh, things like resilience. And so they're for high school students who face some kind of obstacle, hardship, but they're able to rise above it. And boy, Simi, does Radhika do that. So she's now in her third year at UBC Sauter School of Business. She continues to volunteer a ton. And when she was a kid herself, her mom put her in a big sister program so that she'd have a positive role model outside of the household. And Radhika is now a big sister to a younger kid too. And I've tried to give back continuously no matter what. Uh, So throughout Sauter, I've been a part of co-chairing a sexual violence prevention service. So really being an advocate for consent culture within the UBC community. As well, I interned at a nonprofit and found my way into what I wanted, which was accounting. And so I am now going back full time to PwC after an internship. So, yeah, obviously the $40,000 over the course of four years, obviously that alleviated the burden of, you know, student loan debts that she would have accrued otherwise. That would have been daunting for her single mom, for sure. But it opened other doors, too. So it meant like she didn't have to hold down a part time job right alongside her full course load. It meant uh, she could do internships in the summer instead of uh, working full time. And also just she told me that that lack of financial burden kept it kept her mental health in check, too, which is fantastic. And possibly the most exciting part, I think, of this scholarship program is the mentorship that it provides students. So it matches students with professionals who provide guidance and not just like one off, but they do it on a regular basis. And I think that would just be a game changer. So I was matched with Suki, who is in the real estate industry, uh, but we were matched based off our similar passions for nonprofits and community work. And I think that's really bridged us together. We've been able to have really great conversations and he's been a real advocate in helping me put myself out there when it came to networking and landing accounting internships. He helped me boost my confidence and really try networking and try to put myself out there, which was hard being an introvert and naturally a shy person. (laughs) And having that bond with him has been great. And even though now... I've felt a little secure in having a job. He's still, we're still having monthly calls because now it's more of like a family sort of friendship connection now in which we're just checking in on each other, which I really appreciate. Yeah, so amazing, Simeon. So people can actually start applying for this now. They've just opened it up. And so uh, folks can check out the BD Luminary Scholarship website. It's such a game changer for so many, I want to say students, but also for their families, just to alleviate all those burdens associated with paying for school 
That's so impressive because I know that even if you would, you know, lots of people like to fund scholarships and they do that, give some money. It's hard to really set criteria for that and then make sure that criteria is followed. So it's it's lovely to hear how effective they're they're doing this, how effectively they're doing this. Yeah, and also uh, putting a focus on grit and resilience because I don't know, but I think that those uh, attributes are more powerful than just grades than just uh, showing up smart, you know, showing that you can get through personal challenges and overcome them. And Radhika talked to me also about how she was such an introvert before this program. She was so shy. She didn't have confidence. And this has really made her believe in herself. It's just phenomenal. And she's, she's 21 years old and giving back more than most people. Resilience. That is such a great point with that too. And you know what I find, don't you know, Raji too, you probably felt this too, is that uh, when you are in that position of maybe you need some scholarship money or you'd like some help, it's really hard to find it. There's no one place that you can go to that might pair you with a scholarship that would work. That is always a good challenge. And it's intimidating. Um, Also finding a mentor at that age, I find is really intimidating. So it's amazing that they do connect and match students with people in their field in general. Um, At that age, that must be so huge for a student and also just give them a sense of possibility and potential about where they can take their career once they've met and talked to on a regular basis, somebody who's, who's doing it. Certainly nice to see some good work being done out there. Raji, thank you for that. Thanks, Simi.